Well, good morning, church. It's good to look out and see uh, all of you, new faces as well as regular uh, members of this fellowship. And uh, what a joy to come together and worship the Lord. What a great time of worship this morning. And I got to tell you, last night was just unbelievable. Uh, we, yeah, it was incredible, the, uh, the worship service that we had here. And uh, for just a little over an hour, and I, I mean, I actually said to Pastor Brenton, let's just do that in the morning. Forget the message. Let's just, let's just worship the Lord. I did. And he said, well, the team's not going to be here in the morning. <laughs> Several of them uh, were not going to be able to make it. So uh, that's why we didn't. But we are going to plan to have a, a morning worship hour because there's something about just coming into the presence of God, especially from where we live in this age and the things that we deal with on a regular basis and to come before God and just, just fill our hearts with Him, who He is, what He can do, what His nature and character allows Him to do, and just be caught up in Him. And so we will do that. I thought this morning before we get into the message, if you'll just allow me for just a few minutes, I want to give us a point of prayer, a strategic focus of prayer this morning as a church family. I don't uh, go to this length very often, um, but this morning I'm just compelled by the Lord to do this. In fact, through the week it was really burning in my heart to want to do this. And so this week in the news we learned that one of the largest Christian adoption agencies in our country, Bethany Christian Services, has begun to place children in the homes of same-sex couples. And I look, we have visitors, and I don't know what your view, what your position, what your worldview is, um, but understand this, that you're, this is a church, and church means uh, the called ones. That's what it means in the Greek, the called ones called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we didn't choose God. God chose us. He chooses everyone to follow Jesus Christ, but many choose not to. So while we might respect everybody, and we must respect everyone, we are called and commanded by God to love everyone. Yet that doesn't mean that we give up what the Scripture teaches us about truth. And so because this is a church and because we are the called ones, it's, it's important that I share with you what the Bible says about truth. And so interestingly, uh, they started uh, allowing adoptions by same-sex couples. Now, up to this point, they were allowing adoptions to same-sex couples in states where the jurisdiction demanded that in the contract, like in the state of Michigan. But it also needs to be said there were other uh, Christian adoption agencies who wouldn't even allow the same-sex adoptions from their uh, organization, uh, even if the state demanded it. And in fact, right now, before the Supreme Court, there is a case to deliberate over that particular matter. The point I want to make, though, is that, that Bethany Christian Services has caved in to the modern cultural nuances. They've, they're allowing uh, things that Bible clearly tells us 
not to do or not to have or not to participate in. Uh, the latest version of the Equality Care Act that has now come through the liberal house and now is before the Senate. Um, uh, this, this, this has come up before. This is not the first time the, the uh, Equality Care Act has come up. But this is absolutely the most extreme version of the Equality Care Act. And, and there is, it proves that there's a groundswell of sexual uh, revolution happening in our nation. Well, we didn't need to wait until this to find that out. That's been going on for a long time. And now the groundswell moves from just sexual sin into sexual perversion sin. And, and that's where this becomes so, so dangerous. Even President Biden came out and said that if the Equality Care Act makes it through the Senate, he would sign it in the first 100 days. Well, that sets the groundwork to then force, uh, at some point, uh, uh, churches, uh, Christian organizations. It forces them to employ people who come out of maybe a homosexual lifestyle who are in that, or in a same-sex relationship, or who have are transgender, that we cannot deny them employment. And that is an infringement on our religious beliefs. And that is, that is absolutely unconstitutional. And so that's the concern here. We're going to pray that God would shed light upon those in the legislative branch and even in the administrative, the executive branch to see the truth and turn from the darkness. I, I have to tell you, back in October, president he wasn't president then, but Biden said... Quote, I'm going to give you a direct quote. The idea that an 8-year-old child or a 10-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender. That's what I think I'd be like to be. I, it would make my life a lot easier. A, ch a child saying this. He said this. There should be zero discrimination against that. To allow a child to determine what sex they will be. See, we're living in a day when the culture around us is moving further into sexual perversion sin. And what used to be right is now wrong. And what used to be wrong in everybody's eyes is now right. As a church of Jesus Christ, it's our mandate to speak in behalf of God's values that provide safety and protection for our families and certainly for our children. We just saw a group of children let out of here to go and learn biblical principles from the Bible to take on lessons that would teach them about right and wrong. And this is what goes against that. And so we have a responsibility. What started in this nation with just a few who presented in a very private setting their harmful ideologies that they would push on families moved into literally a journal approval of early sexualization of children in both the psychological and the medical fields. And now we see an openly public and unapologetic cultural tsunami. It's, it's demanding the approval of, forgive me for saying this, but this is just the truth, of physical mutilation of children who go in for surgeries in order to change their sex. Children. 
And it's being done even when the parents don't give consent. They're letting the child decide. Uh, Just look at how the media attacked uh, Senator Rand Paul for asking Rachel Levine, a transgender female who went before the Senate for confirmation as President Biden's Assistant Secretary for Department of Health and Human Services. He asked her this question. Do you support the government intervening to override the parent's consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery? Levine responded, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field with robust research. So he did not answer the question, he or she did not answer the question. And basically what, they, what, what he said was, or what she said was, uh, we're so much smarter today than we were years ago. What you're believing, Rand Paul, is antiquated. We've moved way beyond that. That's what they're saying. And by the way, the media went off on Rand Paul for not showing respect to this individual that's going to shape the lives of our children in in regulations and decisions. Did you know that the Wall Street Journal reported that up to, get this, this is the Wall Street Journal. They said up to 80% of children with gender dysphoria grow up not identifying as transgender. They might start out in a dysphoria, but 80% come out of it and they return to their birth sex, 80%. A Brown University study suggested that kids often identify as transgender due to peer pressure or social media trends. That is hardly a reason to support a child's decision over the consent of parents. But again, we're now living in a day, and I say this with respect to anyone here who sees differently, this is a day when right is now wrong, and wrong has become right. I just want to tell you, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a report that the rate of suicide among those aged 10 to 24 has increased by, get this, 60% since 2000, from between 2007 and 2018. Yet the sexual revolution presses on, approving the exploitation of our children. All I can tell you from biblical... Look, I don't have an opinion. I don't have a right to an opinion on this matter. What this matter requires is absolute truth. And I don't have absolute truth, but the Bible does. So I'm going to read the scripture for you. Here's the truth. The Apostle Paul was speaking to Christians in Rome, and he wrote these words. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, here it is, the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So he first gives them up 
to lust out of the impurity of their hearts. Now he gives them up to dishonorable passions. What is that? He says it. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. And then it says in verse 28 of chapter 1, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God in these things, God gave them up to a debased mind. A depraved mind. What is that? It's where someone no longer can recognize right. They don't get it. They're now they see wrong just as right. They're, they're unable to use the mind that God gave them the way he gave it. And then in verse 32, it says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not, not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that's not a picture of our society, our culture today. So we need to pray as a church. And I want you to pray with me. I took extra time to lay this out because I want us as Christians to see the seriousness of this, the effect that it's going to have on a God-given home, on God-given marriage, on how children should be raised in a home by a husband and a wife. And so let's seek the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning just taking this time in the middle of our service before we even get to the text, and we, we just are burdened in our hearts. We, we see a nation that, that has drifted even further and further, continues to drift further from godly, biblical, Judeo-Christian principles. And Lord, the Scripture is very clear that in me, Jesus said, you have life. But if we, if we neglect you, if we turn from you, if we walk away from you, just read the Old Testament as Israel walked away from God. They fell into all kinds of sexual sin and idol worship and things went from bad to worse. And finally, they became uh, slaves to other nations. Father, I pray that we as a nation would turn back to you. I pray at the, at the executive branch that you would begin to open the eyes of those who serve in the cabinet, that you would open the eyes of our president, that he would see that it's wrong to allow a child who's in formative years, who isn't able to make a long-term decision yet. That's why we have parents and then to deny the parents the consent for whether their child is allowed to make a choice that will change their future. Oh God, I pray you'd open his eyes to see the error in that. I pray, Lord, that you would expose the sciences that are not being truthful about the harms that these types of situations cause to our children and to adults. The long-standing uh, harm, Lord, the fact that suicide is now escalated, that we see other things happening in our world that cause that as well. We're not putting it all on, on these types of sin, but Lord, it contributes to it. 
I pray, Lord, that you would be with those who uh, are on the Supreme Court, the judicial branch of our government, that you would, you would uh, guard their hearts and that, Lord, that, that truth would win out as they consider the decisions in these areas regarding family, regarding marriage, regarding the identity of a person that's made in the image of God. Lord, I pray that at the uh, legislative branch, you would begin to help those who know better to rise up and stand up and fight with all of their heart. I pray, Lord, for those who are, at the, who are in the communities, the, 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 those who the, are the people, that we would do our part to speak up, to not show violence against those who disagree, to not try to belittle someone else because they don't take our view. Lord, may we always show respect for anyone who, who is created in the image of God. May we love everyone, but we don't have to respect what is false and what is sinful. God, help us to know the difference and to love people, but speak the truth in love to them. Give us a God-guided uh, uh, hunger for truth and that we would stand on the truth of the Word of God, even if it costs us persecution. And Lord, those days are coming as we continue to move in this direction. And we pray, Lord, that you would prepare us for whatever happens, that we would continue to be people who are salt and light, who love others, even if they persecute us. And that we know the scripture said, Jesus, you said, blessed are you if men revile you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. So we're just in good company. We're, we're like our Savior when we stand for the right things without having to be belligerent and angry and, and, and hate people. So Lord, may that not be who we are, but may we be the people you've called us to be and stand on truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you for allowing me to take that time. I know we'll be here for a couple hours yet in this sermon, and I just really appreciate you. The visitors are going, say what? <laughs> hey, I want to start uh, this morning in our, in our passage, and we're in gospel, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. And we started this study back in September, so we're not really rushing ourselves. We're trying to grow and learn. Matthew's gospel, every gospel was written to a different audience. Matthew's gospel was written to the Jew. Matthew takes a lot of time to quote Old Testament prophecy. And he, he, he wants to appeal to the Jew. But there's much for us to learn in this study. And if you know, if, going back to chapter 14, uh, Jesus opens up his, his public ministry and he's healing people and he's setting people free from uh, de demonic p uh, possession. He's uh, helping the blind to see. He's setting at liberty those that are oppressed. He, oppressed. He's preaching the acceptable year of the Lord, exactly what was prophesied of him by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. And, and so... So he's had this public ministry, but then he comes into us. And if we can put up on the screen uh, this map, and let me step to the side. Uh, this is uh, that region where Jesus ministered early in his ministry. This is the northern area, and Jesus is eventually going to make his way south down to Jerusalem where he will be put on the cross and die for us. 
But right now, what he's doing in Matthew from chapter 14 up to what we're talking about today in chapter 17, he's ministering in this region. So like he starts out in Capernaum, that really was his home base of ministry. He healed people there and whatever. But then the the Pharisees come to him and they question him. And so after he deals with them, he leaves Capernaum and they cross over by boat just in this region below Bethsaida. Not very far. The people can actually see Jesus and the disciples cross over. And so they, they run around the edge of the lake and they meet up with him. When he gets out of the boat, and he was, the reason Jesus left uh, Capernaum was because he just got word that John the Baptist, was uh, his head was chopped off by Herod Antipas. And so he just needs time to get away and just pray. Jesus feels sorrow like we do. He, he's, he was fully man, just like us, yet he was fully God, unlike us. And so he gets over there, when he climbs out of the boat, five, hey, listen, 5,000 people are there to hear him speak. And after the end of the day, and it's a remote area at that time, right in here, so he tells the disciples, let's get some bread and some food for these folks. That it's, we're no, there's no town close by. They'd have to go all the way up to uh, Bethsaida. And so it's too late. So they, they feed 5,000 with what? Five loaves and two fish. And after that, Jesus tells his disciples, get back in the boat and make your way back over. And they land in an area right about here. And, and uh, he goes up on the mountain to pray. He doesn't go with them. But he can see from where he's at on this hill, he can see the disciples on the water and the storm blows up. And so Jesus does what? He comes walking on the water and meets out there with him. And of course, Peter tries to walk and does succeed at first with his eyes on Jesus, takes his eyes off of Jesus, and what happens? He sinks, which is a great analogy for us today in this age. We're in a storm right now. There's a lot of storms. There's a COVID storm. There's a storm uh, in our country with uh, belief systems. We've never been more polarized as a nation than now. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus more now than ever. And so then they're in this region, and then the Pharisees show up again because, see, he's back over in the land of the Jews, and they question him about, uh, hey, why do your disciples not follow the, the traditions of man in the cleansing of their hands before they eat food? And Jesus comes back and says, uh, here's a question for you. Why do you deny the commands of, of the law of God in order to keep your man-made traditions? So he puts it right back on them. At that point, Jesus now changes his ministry. I don't think it's because he changed his mind. This was all God's plan. But now he goes from being a public minister in this region, he now goes silent. And guess where he heads off to? He literally leaves here and goes all the way up to Tyre and further north, Sidon. And he spends time up there with his disciples and he ministers to a Canaanite woman. And he now is ministering not to Jews, but to Gentiles. He's now opened his ministry to the Gentiles. Powerful ministry there. Well, then he leaves Tyre and Sidon and he takes a roundabout and comes all the way down to the southern tip and he's in this region of Decapolis. Decapolis is all of this. Just like, just like uh, up here, this is where Jesus did most of his ministry. Now he's down in this region. But he's close to the water. He's down here. And here he feeds 4,000 people. But this time it's not the Jews. It's a bunch of Gentiles like you and I. Okay, 
And then he makes his way back across over just above Magdala to Magadan. And there he ministers. And now the scribes and the Pharisees come up again. Because, see, they would never follow him over here or go out here. This is the land of Gentiles. Those people are unclean. We're clean. They're not. Talk about racism, okay? And so now Jesus makes his way back into this region, but he comes back in a private way. He's not trying to do public ministry. He's already ended that. And so as he's here, they find him. They come up, they find, they from Jerusalem, they come all the way up here. Jerusalem's down here on this, this garage roll up right here. This, that's where Jerusalem is. And he, they come up and they ask him this big question. Okay, they, they, they come to him. In fact, go back, if you will, into chapter 16. And uh, they're asking him, give us a sign from heaven. Well, Jesus has already performed miracle after miracle that they saw and they heard about, but that wasn't enough. They wanted a sign from heaven, not realizing. See, when you're spiritually blind, you don't recognize what's in front of you. You're deceived. Paul said it this way, Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. They can't see it. You could spend a whole day with an unbeliever and share every aspect of the truth of the gospel, and, and some are going to go, I don't get it, because they've been blinded either by sin, by Satan, or out of the sovereign will of God because they've so turned against God like what we read in Romans that he gives them up to what they want. But, but see, here Jesus is ministering and these guys can't see the fact, a sign from heaven? Jesus came from heaven and he's standing in front of them. What more of a sign do you need than the Messiah standing there looking at you? But they couldn't see it. So now we come to chapter 17. And as we get into chapter 17, something marvelous happens. But I want to begin, if we can, at chapter 16, the last verse in the chapter. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here. Now he's speaking to his disciples. He's not talking to the crowd. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now those who desire to write off the Bible as errant and infallible or those who try to make Jesus out to be less than God, they'll point to that passage and they'll say, wait a minute, the disciples all died. They're not going to see Jesus coming in his kingdom, the second coming of Christ that you talk about. So the Bible's fallible. Well, why did they stop reading in that one verse? Why didn't they go right to the next verse and keep reading? Because the next verse proves what Jesus said. Just six days later, in chapter 17, Matthew records that Jesus was transfigured before the inner circle of disciples. Who's the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. Some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word kingdom there in the Greek, write this down, those of you 
who really enjoy studying the Bible. And we should all enjoy that. We should all do it every day because you never know when God's going to give you opportunity to share with someone what, you, what he's revealed to you, you know? But the word kingdom also translates royal splendor. So Jesus is saying, some of you aren't going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his royal splendor. In other words, you're going to see me as I really am. And so when Jesus was referencing in his closing statement of chapter 16, his, uh, he, he's talking about his transfiguration that happened six days later in chapter 17. So let's pick up at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. A uh, couple things there. Number one, Luke's gospel records the same story a little differently. Luke says in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. Uh, people go, okay, there again, the Bible's contradictory. Because in Matthew, he records six days and Luke says eight days. Well, what sounds like a contradiction can easily be explained because, see, Luke is writing to a more Gentile audience, Jew and Gentile. And so he's using, literally, a common Greek way of speaking. If you go back to the Greek language and what he's saying there, it translates this way. About a week. Whenever the Greeks in that time would say eight days, they were saying about a week. So he's not being specific as to the day like Matthew was being. So just six days later, three of Jesus' disciples experience him as he will be in the second coming. Now, I want to sh we're, people say, well, what mountain was that? Okay, remember, I mean, if I can go back to the map real quick, I don't know if I'm catching you off guard here. Let's just pull that up again. So, so here he is. Well, let me find my pointer in my pants. Where's it at? It got away from me. There it is. Okay. Okay. So he says, uh, so he's here. And he leaves this area right here of Magadan and takes his disciples after the Pharisees ask him to show a sign. And he heads all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. And there he ministers. And then right above Caesarea Philippi, a little ways north, is Mount Hermon. That's the largest mountain in the region, 9,000 feet high. And some scholars think that's where he went and that's where he was transfigured. The only problem is that the top of Mount Hermon is snow caps. I mean, you know, it's just really cold. That is not Mount Hermon. That's uh, uh, Mount Marin, which is located, go back to the map, over here. So he comes up to Caesarea Philippi, ministers, and now he makes his way over here as he's coming back down. And many think it was Mount Miron. And interestingly enough, Mount Miron is about 3,900 feet high. And you can see that it's not snow-capped, okay? And so that likely could be where Jesus was transfigured. And uh, so I'd love to go there and stand on that mount and just see it myself. That would be pretty awesome. And I'm sure you would too. But uh, it was north, uh, 
west of Capernaum, and he's heading back down that way, so it could have been that mountain. We don't know for sure, okay? Uh, a, more, a more worthy question is, what is the difference between a transfiguration and a transformation? You know, why all of a sudden, the Bible talks a lot about transformation, but all of a sudden now it's transfiguration. What's the difference? Well, let me give it to you. Write this down. The word transfiguration in the Greek is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. Now, there's two Greek words there, morphe, meaning body or form, and meta, meaning change. His form was changed. When there's a transfiguration, your form is changed. Nothing changes on the inside in a transfiguration. It's an outward change. It's on the outside that you change. Listen to me. Jesus is God. He didn't need any internal change. But he, God, allowed Jesus to reveal. He took the cloak off, and they saw Jesus as he really is, glorified. So the transfiguration is about an outward transformation or change, okay? But the word, so to transfigure, I'll say it to you this way. To transfigure is to change an outward form or appearance, to change so as to glorify or exalt when something is transfigured, you will want to glorify and exalt it. And by the way, there's only one who has been transfigured, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's God. You should hold God in awe and wonder. Amen? Amen. Now, transformation? No. Transformation is to change in form, appearance, or structure, to change in condition, to change in nature, to change in character. Literally, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, who's he speaking to, Jesus? No, he's speaking to us, the church. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, there was an internal change that took place. So we are changed on the inside by Christ in a transformation. And while we're being changed, as we're changing, we still don't stand in awe. Oh, I'm just in awe of the change in you. No, you're not. You're... you're you're not God. Don't give awe to anyone but God. Amen? That's why I, I despise the title reverend. Because reverend comes from the root revere, awe. No pastor should ever be, you should ever be in awe of a man. Ever. Only God. So do you understand the difference? Transformation occurs inside of us. Those who were created by God. We are transformed. The old is given up and the new has come. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Transfiguration happens when Jesus, when God reveals who he really is on the outside. Inside, he doesn't need to change. He's God. Make sense? Okay, so when you see anybody speak of transfiguration, and they're talking about the change in a person, that is an absolute incorrect use of the word transfiguration. All right. Uh, 
By the way, the transfiguration of Christ here is not a miracle. It's not a miracle. It's just a revealing. It's not a miracle. Jesus isn't, it's not a miracle that Jesus became God when he was transfigured. He was God when he, before he transfigured. He just revealed it, that's all. Okay? And what does it say about his physical appearance in the transfiguration? Boy, was it extremely evident. Look at this. It says, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You can't put enough uh, you know, clothing detergent in the washing machine to make it as white as Jesus was wearing. Okay? He was glorified. You, they saw him, those three disciples saw him as he is in heaven. In fact, take your Bible, turn to John chapter 1, because his, his, his appearance here is unmistakable. Uh, the, 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 the real miracle is not that Jesus was transformed or transfigured. The real miracle is that when he walked among men, he wasn't, because that's really who he is. How did he keep from showing his glory while he walked among men? But look what it says in John. The same John who was on the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured. In the writing of his own gospel, he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, we have seen his what? His glory. Now, we had read for us earlier in Isaiah the prophecy about Christ that there's nothing about him that makes you be attracted to him. He doesn't have any earthly beauty. Jesus, if he walked in, all these pictures of Jesus, all these movies with Jesus that show him as being this handsome, rugged-looking guy, you know, with these muscles and all, eh, throw that stuff out the window. That's Hollywood. Isaiah tells us the truth. The guy's not good-looking. If he walked in our church, nobody would be impressed looking at him. He's just an ordinary-looking guy. Some of you gals would say, I don't want to know him. Though you single women, nah, I have no interest in that guy. That's the real Jesus. Yet, all of a sudden, they see who he really is as the veil comes off. And John said it this way, <clears throat> And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How did he know that? Because he saw it on the mountain. He heard it from God the Father himself. Verse 15, John bore witness about him. Now he's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no grace, there is no truth today on this earth that does not come from God. Man can act so intelligent and so smart and God says, you're a fool to deny me. The Bible says in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You're a fool. Anybody who says there's no God. I'm, don't, I'm not calling you out. God is. It's what, I'm just quoting what God said. He says, if you deny God, you're a fool. And it will be shown to you in the end. The Bible says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every Hollywood actor that acts like they've got it all together. Every single politician, every scientist, every intellectual who's given over to worldly thinking. In the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every one of them will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. The problem is it's too late. They were a fool for not believing him while they had the opportunity. He says this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God the Father made Jesus known on the Mount of Transfiguration. John, in his gospel, is telling you about his experience at the Transfiguration. Peter wrote about it too. Peter was there as well. In 2 Peter 1.16, write that down, 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think for some reason, as a bunch of old fishermen, we just kind of threw all this together in a mystical way, you're nuts. We didn't do that. Everything we told you was what we actually saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look what he says. But we were eyewitnesses of what? Of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, God the Father spoke while he was on that mountain in front of Peter, James, and John, and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They heard it. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Wow. The mountain wasn't holy in itself. It was holy because God was there. And they were there. They saw God on the mountain, Jesus. John would see Jesus later in his life when he is caught up in heaven on the Lord's day. He's been exiled to Patmos because he's been preaching the gospel. He's uh, 90 years old. He's in Pat on Patmos. And God on the Lord's day calls him up and he has a spiritual vision of what's happening in heaven during and after the rapture of the church. The church is no longer on the earth, it's in heaven with the Lord. And he sees, listen to this, Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. We're in verse 1 and 2. We, how are we going to make it through this whole thing? There's no way. Okay, Revelation 1 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, the lampstands were the seven churches. In the midst, among the lampstands, among the churches, is Jesus. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. He can't even describe in earthly terms how white his hair was. And then he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. The voice of Jesus in that vision that God allowed John to see as he pulled back the curtains of heaven, Jesus' voice was like Niagara Falls. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What was that? The word of God. Everything Jesus ever said, everything the prophets and the law ever said to us, because it stands forever. It comes out of his mouth. And his face, here it is, just like what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
That's our Jesus. He is not some little tiny baby lying in a manger today. He's not an infant who is relying upon his parents or others. He is the Lord who is in heaven, who's glorified. And he allowed the disciples while he was on earth to see him in that state. He is the second person of the Trinity. He went to the cross as a man, an innocent man, and he died for sinful man. But he didn't just go to the cross as a man. He went fully God. And he did what no man could do. Praise God. So this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples at the close of chapter 16. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They saw it. Verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So they didn't just see Jesus in his full splendor. They see Elijah and Moses. How do they know it's Elijah and Moses? Well, one of two things happened. Remember, in the last chapter, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they said, thou art the Christ. By the way, they said, he, said, he asked them that question up in Caesarea Philippi, way up in the north, where all the gods of the world, that's like the, that's like the coven of the birth of the god of Pan in some mountain up in there, a cave up in there. And he, that's when he said, who do men say that? They say that you're Elijah, you're a prophet. They say, you know, you know, and he said, no, who do you say? And they said, Peter goes, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. God gave you that insight right here, right now when I asked you. God gets all the glory for that, not Peter. And now they're seeing Jesus and Elijah and Moses. Who do you think told them? God the Father. Or he didn't have to tell them because they heard him talking with Moses and Elijah. And so maybe Jesus, as they were talking, he was greeting them. Yo, Moses, <laughs> Elijah, good to see you guys. We don't really know exactly. We don't need to know. They knew. Elijah and Moses. That's who it was. So these two Old Testament leaders appeared and spoke with the transfigured Christ. Most, Moses, by the way, lived 1200, or 1,400 years earlier, and now he's with Jesus on the mountain. Uh, Elijah, 900 years earlier, and here he is with Jesus on the mountain. Why these two? Why those two guys? I'll tell you why. Because Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of it. So you got the two guys in the Old Testament that represent the law and the prophets talking to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Isn't that pretty cool? Man, that's, that's awesome. Several takeaways. Let's just give them to you real quick. Number one, we learned that our departed brothers and sisters are alive. If Elijah and Moses, Moses who lived 1,400 years earlier, Elijah 900 years, and yet they're alive with Jesus, that's pretty cool. That means your, bro your brothers and sisters in Christ who have died, they are with Jesus, okay? And we learned that they still live in their personalities. They could recognize them. They're still the same guys in terms of their personality. You don't lose your senses, your, your sensibility, your personality when you go to heaven. That remains. That's why we'll be able to recognize our brothers and sisters in heaven. Isn't that cool? Also, let me say to you that uh, uh, they, they, they know each other's names. We know that. 
And then most of all, they enjoy a level of intimate fellowship with Christ that goes beyond anything we can experience in this world. These three guys are having a time talking. Verse 3, they were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but guess what? Luke does. In Luke chapter 9, verse 30, he said, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what were they all talking about, those three? They were talking about that Jesus would soon go to the cross, that Jesus would be put in the grave, that Jesus would rise from the dead, and that Jesus would ascend to the Father in heaven. They were talking about the most important things you could talk about on this earth. And we ought to make those things the most important thing that we talk about too, amen? There's no subject that are greater than those subjects. And Peter said to Jesus in verse 4, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Okay, now they're having this experience. Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses. They're all having this interaction. Peter, James, and John are just standing there watching all this. And while they're talking, Peter opens his mouth. Insert foot. Have you ever been there? If you could just take back what you just said. And he goes off, and Luke and Mark actually record it differently. They give you the insight. Peter didn't really know what he was saying. He just starts blabbering. He's wanting to build a shrine to the three, give each one of them their own shrine on that mountaintop. And and, uh, he, he doesn't have a clue. What he just said was, he just put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He just put God on the level of men, created beings. Well, while they're talking, Peter pipes up, gives his great idea. By the way, let me just say this. That word tense there, he says, let me make you three tense here. Where did Peter come up with that? I'll tell you where. Uh, The word tense translates as booths. And if you know the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the Feast of Booths. Booth is a tabernacle. And it was made out of sticks. It was a temporary housing. That's why at the Feast of Tabernacle for the Jews, that was one of the great feasts, they would all go to Jerusalem and they would set up these sticks and make a little hut and they would live under it and they would, uh, for a short time. And they would tell their children as they look up through the sticks into the heavens and see the stars and say, this is how our forefathers lived for 40 years in the wilderness. And God protected them. So Peter's thinking good thoughts. I mean, hey, let me build you a booth. Each of you, you're special. And, and so finally, look at verse 5. He was still speaking. So Peter's just, just going off, you know, on all of his ideas, his grand plans. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So now a cloud comes in over the mountain. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He just shuts Peter down. While Peter's blabbering, God just does his thing. God the Father shows up in a cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he says, listen to him, Peter. Shut your mouth. No, he wasn't addressing Peter. He was actually bringing all glory to Jesus. He was correcting and saying, no, no, this is not about Moses and Elijah. They're not cut from the same cloth. 
Jesus is God. He's not a created being like those two guys. And he is my beloved son. He's the second person of the Trinity. He created all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians tells us about Jesus. Therefore, listen to whatever he says. Don't listen to what man says. Don't listen to Elijah and Moses at this time. Listen to Christ, the the Messiah. This cloud that came in, that in the Old Testament was the Shekinah of God. When the cloud would roll in as Moses would go to the tabernacle and the cloud would come in, that was literally the Shekinah. The glory of God would come in a cloud. Why a cloud? Because no man can look into the Father and live. You can't look into his face and live. So it was necessary that he hide himself in a cloud. Verse 5, latter part, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Uh, It's interesting that the father spoke those words in the presence of the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. And he's saying, my son is the summation of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. No longer are you looking to the law and the prophets. You just look to him. And by the way, Jesus quotes the law and the prophets a lot in Matthew's gospel. But the focus is on Jesus. All men pale in comparison to Christ. Never shall we put men on a pedestal. This is what the Father's communicating when he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They're terrified. And and interestingly, uh, it was when the disciples heard the voice from heaven that they fell on their faces terrified. It wasn't when Jesus, when they saw Jesus glorified. It wasn't when they saw Moses and Elijah It wasn't when they heard the conversation of the three. It was when the Father showed up in a cloud. They literally became undone. You say, how do you know that? It doesn't say that. Because in Isaiah's Isaiah's message about Christ, the Messiah prophecy, God shows up in the temple. And Isaiah comes into the temple and he sees the Lord seated on the throne, highly exalted, the robe of his temple, Uh, robe of his that he was wearing the train of his robe filling the temple and it says immediately what came out of isaiah's mouth was i am undone woe is me i am disintegrating in the presence of god the next word out of his mouth i'm a sinner and he confesses that he has an unclean mouth and that he lives among a people who have an unclean mouth. See, when you come into the presence of God, you don't take ownership. You don't start shouting, woo, and doing whatever. When you come into the presence of God, you fall flat because he's so holy. There's nothing but absolute fear in the presence of God. And I don't mean a fear in a bad way. I mean a healthy, righteous fear. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Bible says to fear the Lord is to hate what is evil. They had a healthy fear of God. And then Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, well, let's wait. Let's stop there. 
we'll come back to it because we're running out of time and I don't want to rush and I don't want you to start drifting in your mind away from what we're talking about. This stuff is so important. So I'll come back next week and we'll address the rest of chapter 17 and get into some of 18 if the Lord allows us, okay? Right, we're not on some time frame where it's all got to happen the way man plans it. We're, we're on God's time frame, right? So we go as far as God says go and then we stop. So what's the takeaway today? I don't know what the Lord's telling you. I know what the takeaway is for me. It's been my takeaway all week long is that in this world, living in this world, I can easily be tainted. I can take on some of the ways of this world. I can begin to, I'm less sharp in the truth because the world wears on you. And this calls us back. These men were good men, the disciples. This is the inner circle, by the way. These are the closest disciples to Jesus out of the 12. And yet they get up on the mountain and Peter's drifting. He's talking when he ought to be quiet. He's giving credence to Elijah and Moses at the same level of Christ. That's nonsense. We do the same. When we drift away from who Jesus is, and we drift away from the study of his word, and we drift away from an intimate relationship with Christ, you don't realize how the world begins to, begins to come into you. You begin to think differently. And God calls us back. He's calling us back through this text, giving us opportunity to change. Let's close in prayer. Father, this morning there's just so much that I want to share and yet, Lord, not everything that I want is what you want. So, Lord, we surrender to you. Forgive me for anything that I've said this morning that was not what you wanted shared. And the things that I did share according to your will, I pray that those things would be remembered and magnified in the hearts of our people, that they would grow in you, that they would have such a healthy fear of the Lord that they would see Jesus in the midst of their trial and that they would search after you, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. First, in the fleshly sense, you came to earth in man's flesh and you revealed the, the temp you said, I was, I've been tempted in every way that you can be tempted, yet you sin not. You understood sorrow, you understood pain. So you can identify with us, yet you also revealed yourself as God even while you were still walking on the earth. This special experience that these three disciples had. Lord, may we never forget, you've shown us through the Gospels and even in Revelation, that you are the glorified Christ. You're not a baby in a manger any longer. That every day we have access to you by the Holy Spirit. May we walk in it. And those that might be here who do not know Jesus, the gospel's already been shared as Marshall got up and shared communion with us, but shared the gospel. May they receive you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we have uh, elders and, and prayer partners who will come to the front and spread out. And if you'd like to have prayer for any matter in your life, I know that we're going to, some of us elders are going to gather with one of our members uh, here right, right after service and pray with them. If you would like to come up and receive prayer, we've got those who will be glad to pray for you, okay? And the rest of you, man, enjoy the fellowship of the believer. 
before you leave today. Love each other, care for each other, and uh, we'll see you again Thursday night. We continue in our study on the kings out of 1 Samuel, so come and join us, and then next Sunday morning we'll come back to, to Matthew. God bless each of you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.